Good morning again, Hill family. If you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 15 is where we will be, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> again, if you were just coming in, I, my name's Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my great privilege to welcome you this Easter Sunday. To know me is to know that I have somewhat picky movie taste. I don't deal, I can't do the whole cheesy acting, predictable plot lines and simplistic action scenes of most of the Netflix movies today. My taste for cinema is, I don't know the right word, a bit more sophisticated, I might say. For instance, second only to Rocky Balboa, the movie Braveheart, starring Mel Gibson, is a masterpiece of film. Braveheart is the, if you don't know, Braveheart is the Academy Award-winning movie loosely based on the historic retelling of the Scottish leader, William Wallace, and their fight for independence in the 13th century. I have, a, I have a Scottish man in the audience, so I'm, I'm going to make sure I say loosely historical. After years of fighting, though, and, and leading the countrymen of Scotland to defy English rule, William Wallace was eventually arrested for treason and beheaded in August 1305. That's fact. While in prison, though, awaiting his execution, he's, he was offered the chance to confess his wrongdoings, as was often the case with prisoners to swear allegiance to the crown, and to receive mercy, maybe sparing of his life or at least sparing of the, the manner in which he was going to die. But in the drama of the movie, meaning it probably didn't happen at all, the, prince of the, the princess of Wales herself comes to plead with Wallace to recant, to find mercy, yet he refuses. In tears, she pleads with him, you will die and it will be awful. To which Wallace famously responds, if you know the movie, at least in the Hollywood cinema, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. And while these profound words may or may not have ever come from the lips of William Wallace, they are packed with truth nonetheless, and truth that we must consider this Easter morning. Living, truly living, more than just breathing in air and out like we're doing today, spiritual life requires each of us coming to terms with death. Death is our great enemy. Death is an immutable reality in this world, which serves everybody alike. Death is as rude to presidents and celebrities as it is to beggars and farmers. It is no respecter of person. We cannot duck death's force. Death is the great fear and dread of this world. But not so for the Christian. For the Christian, the, the power, the pain, and the fear of death is silenced in the face of the resurrection. For the Christian, we, we don't just endure death. For the Christian, we don't just merely escape death. For the Christian, we overcome death. But we overcome death by life in the victorious king. Jesus, who defeated death through his resurrection from the dead. We celebrate the fact this morning 
that our faith is founded upon a great victory, a victory over death. And nowhere is this truth spelled out with more clarity than in Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. Mostly known by most of us as the great chapter on the resurrection. Here you find the most elaborate, the most um, advanced argument that we find in the scriptures regarding the resurrection. And the apostle, though he writes really with a singular focus, he makes clear that the Christian life, he makes clear that the gospel message itself hangs on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This isn't an option we get to choose as Christians. Christ was born. Christ died. Christ rose again. And by so doing, Christ overturned history. He turned reality, as we know it, upside down on its head, defeating our great foe, death. Here's my main idea. Hopefully I can make this point the rest of my text, but I want to say this this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is the great Easter victory which transforms death and informs every area of the Christian life. The resurrection of Jesus is the great Easter victory which transforms death and informs every single aspect of what we know to be life as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verses 50 down to the end of the chapter. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, in our next few moments, guard our heart's mind. Lord, help me to speak with clarity. Help the clarity of the gospel to fall upon our hearts this morning. We bring so much, I bring so much things that can bring confusion as we sit under the word. God, help us by your Holy Spirit for me to be clear and for our hearts to hear with clarity the really succinct truth of what it means to be a Christian today. We have faith in this resurrected King. God, our time. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as you heard me read, I'm really just picking up the end of Paul's argument, which he began back in verse 1. might be worth going home today and reading the rest of this great chapter. And... In verse 1, it's concerning a particular issue. I want us to see in verse 12. So if you turn your eyes down to verse 12 of chapter 15, there's an issue going on, and Paul is addressing it with this whole chapter. It says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So like today, Corinth contains skeptics about the resurrection. 
There were those who doubted the resurrection from the dead. So Paul writes this great chapter to prove, to persuade the church regarding the great truth of the resurrection. If you were to, if we were to take the whole chapter apart, he deals with the evidence of the resurrection in verses 1 through 11. He deals with the importance of the resurrection in 12 through 34. The order of the resurrection in 35 to 41. And the value of the resurrection in 42 to 49. But what we're going to deal with this morning particularly is Paul's conclusion. The response, you might say. Paul offers a response of praise regarding the glories we as Christians enjoy in the resurrection. And this Easter, I want to give us at least highlight three things here in our text to consider. And we're going to look at a great transformation. We're going to look at a great victory. And we're going to look at a great motivation. So if we look at verses 50 to 53, we see first how Christ's resurrection ensures our great transformation. Verse 50, Paul begins by setting forth a seemingly insurmountable obstacle. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, in our current state, in our current state, we have a problem. Paul says flesh and blood, which speaks of our physical human existence tainted by sin. It's perishable, corruptible, and therefore it has no place with the imperishable or the incorruptible. We were born in the likeness of Adam. This is Paul's argument throughout Corinthians. Born of the dust, as he just mentioned in verse 48. This fallen earthly dress, we might say, cannot inherit the kingdom because the perishable cannot share with the imperishable. We have a serious problem. Yet Paul interjects in verse 51, look at it. Behold, I tell you a mystery, he says. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. He's speaking to the church here. Paul bursts forth regarding a mystery here which solves the problem. He's telling them. And it's a mystery involving a, a drastic change and a transformation. This mystery, Paul says, is that we shall not all sleep. We shall be changed. Sleep here refers to death. For every Christian, whether dead or, or still alive in Christ, they will experience this transformation. We should say when. When the trumpet sounds, that's when it says. When the trumpet announcing the second coming of Christ, the return of our King resounds. Christ has come once already in His incarnation. He was born among us. He lived and He died upon the cross. He rose. We're here to celebrate this morning. And then He ascended into heaven as we've talked about in the book of Hebrews the last couple months. At, the, at His first coming. But the Christian faith is built on the assurance that Christ, at some point in human history, Again, will return a second time in full power and glory to institute that which he began at his first coming. And when he does, everyone will be changed. For both the living and the dead who are in Christ, the outcome will be the same. All will be changed. All will be transformed, he speaks of the Christian here. And this transformation will take place instantly and completely, he says. It's not, it's not some sort of process we go through. It happens, he says, what? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. What is Paul saying here? He's saying in the, the smallest indivisible unit of time is what's being described here. 
And it will be complete and thorough, he says. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will be instantly made fully fit for the kingdom of God when Christ returns. For you will be instantly and utterly, completely transformed, redressed. We live in a world of, we live in a world enamored with change. Changing personalities, changing body types, changing partners, and sadly attempts at changing gender at this point. But all the change we seek in this world can never rid us of our mortality, our corruptibility. Ultimate change, the change that we all need, cannot and will not be found in this world. We can dress things up. I did that this morning. We can make things look different. We may be able to slow certain processes down. We can act differently. We can change many things about us. But the reality is this mortal, this corruptible flesh will overcome us in the end. We will die. You ever walk the the beach on an evening, admired all the beautiful sandcastles, elaborate sandcastles they have lined up? Certain times of the year, there's contests that happen there, right? You recognize, you can see, I can't do that, that's what I see. But I recognize that there's a lot of time, there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of ingenuity that takes in building these sandcastles. They're returned in the morning, following the rise of the tide. You ain't gonna find no evidence there was ever a sandcastle there. You might find somebody's little tool that's been washed around. The inevitable happens. Tide comes in. Castle disappears. Brothers and sisters, our our lives in this world are like sandcastles on the beach. Simply waiting for the tide to come in. We build them. We do our best to beautify them. We try very hard to preserve them. We add a lot of things to them. But the tide of death is coming. Our lives will be given over to death. Our corruptible, perishable bodies will give way. We need change. We need a transforming power outside of this world. And this is what we find in the resurrection of Jesus. He has the power to turn the tide of death. Paul said that in the kingdom of God, when Jesus returns to establish it on this earth, our bodies will be changed so that there will be no decay, no wearing out, no running down, no death, no tears. The resurrection of Jesus ensures our great transformation first. But secondly, Christ's resurrection accomplishes, accomplished our great victory. Verses, in verses 54 to 57, there are two common but very important words. I want you to see them in 54 that are important to consider here. The first one is when. Your translation might say so then or but when. This word denotes what? Time, right? But there's a second word. The second word is then, about three quarters of the way down in the verse. Then shall come to pass. What does this imply? This implies a result, right? So in other words, when this great transformation takes place a glorious result will follow. What is it? It is our great victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory, the text says. Or as Isaiah 25, 8, where Paul is quoting from, says, death is swallowed up forever. Swallow up here has to do with 
total destruction, a total end. Think about my teenage boys and my cabinet full of food. They swallow it up. Ain't nothing left. It's gone quickly. They don't leave no evidence or anything. It's gone. (laughs) I heard an amen over there. (laughs) Now, we know that death is not swallowed up yet. Death is still an enemy. You know that. I know that. Even though we need not fear death as Christians, there is still a sense in which death violates us. It takes things we love. It breaks relationships. It steals from us. Death still delivers a tremendous blow. But there is a time coming when this will be no more. When victory shall be swallowed up. Victory shall swallow up death forever. I'm going to give you a long quote from one commentator, but it's a good one. So it's behind me on the, on the, on the screen. So bear with me. It says this, quote, Death is not merely destroyed so that it can do so, so, so it can't do further harm while all of the harm which it has wrought on God's children remains. No, the tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those who were wrecked still lie in ruin. The destruction of death is far more intense. Death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. Death is not just defeated from doing any further harm. No, the reality of Jesus' resurrection is that everything death has overdone will be undone. Death will be swallowed up. It will be eradicated forever at the return of Christ. And this incredible victory causes Paul here, the apostle, to literally mock death itself in verse 55. Look at it. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is said to lose its sting, to lose its poison, to lose its venom. Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The reality is, physical death is not what really harms us. It's not what we should fear, ultimately. It's the death within death as a result of sin, which is our real foe. Our physical death points to, signifies, gives evidence of a deeper death, a spiritual death, which is our real enemy. Death gains its power over humans through sin because sin leads to condemnation before God. The sting of death is sin because the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Death is terrible because of sin. Our sin leads to condemnation. Our sin gives way to hell and judgment. The worst thing a human can experience is not dying physically. It's dying physically and then spending eternity separated from God in a spiritual state of condemnation and spiritual death due to our sin. That's the sting of death, Paul's saying. And the law is said to be the power of sin. The law brings about the awareness of our sinfulness. Not that the law is bad in any way. The law is good and just and right. It came from God. But the law exposes our sinful nature. We know we are sinners by the law. It testifies that we are lawbreakers. It testifies that we are sinners. That's why we sin. And it testifies to the justice of God's condemnation due our sin. The law carries with it a curse. 
Paul speaks of the curse of the law in, in other places. See, the law boxes us in. The law renders us guilty. The law renders us deserving of God's punishment. But here's a very important truth where many go awry in the Christian faith. The law cannot save you. You cannot save yourself through religious activity. Your inability to uphold the law convicts you. You cannot do enough to overcome your debt. Our greatest need is not to overcome physical death. It is to have our sentence of condemnation due to our sin canceled. And this is what distinguishes Christianity from every other faith system. And this is what exposes really the most common misunderstanding amongst many who profess to be Christians, actually what the Christian faith is. If your understanding of Christianity begins in any way in the first person, you're missing the mark of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If you say, I am a Christian because I. I am a Christian because I'm a pretty good person. I'm a Christian because I attend church. I'm a Christian because I was baptized. Even this, I'm a Christian because I believe. Because I'm better than so and so. Beloved, the Christian faith is not to be founded on the first person, I in any way or any sense of the word, but in the third person, but he. And this is exactly what leads Paul to burst forth in 57 in praise. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory and the sting of death is removed because God did something. That's the message of the Christian faith. He did something worthy of our praise. Thanks be to God, the text says. What did he do? God sent his son, Jesus, to satisfy all the demands of the law through his perfect, obedient life, which we never could do. And then he bore the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross in our place. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. The resurrection not only overturns death's destructive forces of decay physically, but it prevails over sin's deadly poison spiritually. The resurrection accomplishes our great victory over sin. Christ satisfied the demands of the law for us through his life. And he bore the curse deserved for us through his death upon the cross. He died in our place. As sinners. But he rose again. As the victorious one, demonstrating he has the power over sin and death. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
We will die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see what he done there? Two types of death, two types of life. We will die physically, but we can live spiritually and escape the physical, the, the spiritual death through Christ. There is no death in the death for those who believe in Christ. This thing is gone. I'm highly allergic to honeybees. I'm married to a wife. To a, I'm married. I was going to say I'm married to a wife. Yes, I am married to a wife. I'm married to my wife who is a nurse. Who's always telling me, where's your EpiPen? And I don't have one. But a honeybee is a very unique in that it, when it stings, it, it leaves behind its stinger. You might know this. When the honeybee stings, it releases its venom through a, a barbed stinger, which it actually can't pull back out. So it leaves behind not only the stinger, but also part of its abdomen, which eventually leads to its death. Not immediately, but eventually the bee dies. Brothers and sisters, for, for us who are in Christ, death is like a honeybee. When it delivered its blow of death to Christ, when it pierced him with its venom, it actually dealt its own demise. The sting of death was forever lost at the cross for the believer. When Christ rose from the grave, death was made impotent. For all who trust in him. Yes, for sure, it buzzes. Yes, it aggravates us. It may even cause us worry and anxiety. It is still a foe. But it's an impotent foe for the Christian. Its stinger is removed. Its venom is gone. And it will soon be eradicated at the return of Christ. I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God is not based upon your feelings. It's not based upon my feelings. It's not based upon our emotions. It's not based upon your faith or my faith or the lack thereof. If it is, we're in trouble, if you're honest. The kingdom of God is based upon the victory of Christ, period. When Christ rose from the grave, he turned everything upside down on his head. That which characterizes this world, sin, condemnation, death, defeat, was delivered. It's death blow by the victory of Christ over the grave. And we too share in this great victory if we have faith in this victorious king. Verse 58 takes us really to an interesting verse in this section. I want us to see here lastly that Christ's resurrection provides us our great motivation. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians was a, a text that I went to kind of apologetically, when I was dealing with someone who was doubting the resurrection or thinking about the Christian faith, I might go here to try to help persuade them and use it apologetically. But you can do that. But it wasn't until the death of my dad that I understood the conclusion and I heard the conclusion from this text. Verse 58, Paul brings us to a conclusion of this great chapter of the resurrection, which is really essential. Paul intends to be a, to, for there to be a, a practical effect of all that he just said. But not a practical effect just for us in the future. Like right now, today. The word therefore makes this point. Verse 58 spells out our rightful response to everything we have just considered in verses 51 to 57. And really all that's been said up this far. In other words, Christ has come. Christ has died. 
for sinners. Christ took on for Christians our sin upon himself. He fulfilled the demands of the law for you and for me. He removed the sting of death. There is, no, there is now no condemnation, no hell, no fear. Though our bodies go into the grave, the trumpet will sound, Christ will come, and our mortal bodies will be made imperishable. Death has been swallowed up by our victorious king. Therefore, he says, what does he say? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Obedience is essential for the Christian life. But our obedience is essential not to earn anything from God. Obedience is our rightful response to all that God has done for us in Christ. In other words, our work, our labor is motivated by God's prior work in the gospel, particularly His resurrecting power. Paul uses three words here to describe our obedience in light of the resurrection. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord. Interesting word choice here. Steadfast speaks of keeping going or not letting up. Put your hand to the plow. Don't take it off till your work is done. He's speaking of steady movement forward till the work is complete. Immovable is to be still. Not to even make a twitch. Paul is calling the Corinthians here to be firm. To be steady. To be unmovable. In relation to what? In relation to the resurrection. In relation to the theological truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember back to verse 12 where I began. Where some were doubting the resurrection. And then listen to... The similar language we read in verse 1, how he ties into the end in verse 58. Put your eyes back on verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you what? Stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. See the similar language there. Paul is calling the Corinthians to stand firm in the resurrection because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. If you lose the resurrection, you lose the gospel. Without the resurrection, we are still in our sin. And if we're still in our sin, we're still under the condemnation of God. But thanks be to God, we have victory in Jesus Christ. The resurrection reminds us of this. Be movable on this, he says. And then, what does he say? Work hard. That's what he says. Work really hard, Paul says. Paul concludes, if you know the resurrection to be true, and you are standing firm on it, you ought to work hard in his view. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This brings us really back to Wallace's quote a bit, right? Everybody dies, but not everyone truly lives. Brothers and sisters, we cannot truly understand what it means to live in the Christian life until we come to terms with death, until we come to terms with what the resurrection means. Paul says here, that the resurrection for the Christian should be, it should be settling. 
The resurrection should be shaping to us. The resurrection should be perspective forging for us. It should put roots down. It should make us steady and strong. Because the resurrection changes everything. Yes, the resurrection is the basis for our Christian hope, no doubt. But it's also the motivation of every area of our lives. Church, the resurrection assures us. The resurrection of Jesus assures us there is a kingdom. And it's not this one. Let me say it again in in, in my Georgia tone. The resurrection ensures us there is a kingdom and it ain't this one. We hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We believe and embrace the resurrection of Christ as motivation for all we do in this life. There are many, many things we can spend our time doing. Many things we can spend our money on. Many things we can give our attention to in this world. That will be in vain. But there is nothing, Paul says, no labor, no effort, no financial sacrifice, no early morning, no late night. That is in vain for the kingdom of God. Church, we must be steadfast. We must be immovable. We must work hard for the kingdom. Why? Because there's an empty tomb and there is a secured throne. That's why. And we do so with hope, knowing that our labor is not in vain when it is done for Christ, for the resurrected King. We share the gospel, we make disciples, we love our neighbors. We give sacrificial to the local church. We engage the lost. We take the gospel to the nations. We engage. We endure suffering. We fight against pride. We strive for sexual purity. We spend our lives for Christ. Why? Because the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. That's why. We work in response to God's great work in Christ. We labor not for victory Hear this, we labor from victory, Christ's victory over sin and death. We will all die, but will we actually truly live? To be a Christian, to experience true spiritual life, is to be the product of two births. Everyone in this room is born of the flesh, Paul talked about that. By nature and by choice, everyone in this room is a sinner. And while we may be able to justify our sin by comparing it to other people, the standard is not other people. The standard is God Himself. He's the holy, righteous, and perfect creator of all things, including your life. And our sin is an affront to His glory, to His perfection. And it results in our condemnation and separation from Him. We have died spiritually. And evidence of that is that we will die physically. And God would be perfectly just. God would be perfectly right to leave us all in that state. But the great and glorious truth of the Christian message is that God has done something. 
in an act of inexplainable, unexplainable love, He sent His Son to make possible a second birth. Allowing us to truly live and overcome our first birth. Jesus, the divine Son, was born in this world. Yet He never gave in to sin. He's the only man born, the God-man, who did not sin. Yet He died. Why did He die? He didn't die for His sin. He died for our sin. He died for our condemnation, our judgment. And the penalty for our sin upon the cross. He died in the place of sinners. And three days later, He rose giving content, not just wishful thinking to Paul's words here. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, who is your sting? So are you alive this morning? I'm not asking, are you breathing? Are you alive this morning? Do you know Christ? If someone came up to you before you walked in here on Sunday and said, are you a Christian? And you said, yes. And they said, why? And you said, because I Fill in the blank. You're going down the wrong path. I love you enough to tell you you're wrong. We're not here to... The standard for which we have to enter into the kingdom is not each other. The standard is the perfection of a holy and righteous God who lovingly created us that we have spurned and we've turned our backs on in our sin. But He sent His Son. To live a life, to die a death, to offer us a reward of forgiveness, of acceptance, and spiritual life in Him. And the Bible says that we must be born again. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must repent of our sins. We must trust in Him and turn to Him. You can do that today. There's no reason outside of yourself that you'd walk out of this place spiritually dead. Other than you rejecting the call of the gospel today. Hear Christ. See your sin. Respond to Christ today by faith. Christian, I want you to feel the reality of this text. I want you to feel this morning. Hear this morning. I ain't talking about just feelings. I want you to feel it in your soul, in your belly. That in in the worst moment of your sin, In the darkest night of your despair. When you're overcome with worry, anxiety, fear. The truth of this passage remains. Because it's not built on the first person. It's built on the third person, him. The truth remains that death has has been swallowed up in victory of Christ. I want you to feel in the depth of your soul this Easter morning... The Apostle Paul's rebuke over our struggles, our difficulties. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the Christian, there is none. It's impotent. There is no sting left. And Christian, be steadfast. Christian, be immovable. Hill Church, let's labor hard for Him.
because the tomb is empty. The throne is secure. I want us to respond to this text. I'm going to give us a moment of reflection here. If you're not a believer, I, I want you to hear. I want you to take the truths that you've heard and reflect upon them. And hear the call of the gospel again. Christian, hear the call of the gospel today. We, we stand in, we serve a victorious king. Walk in that truth today. God and our King. Lord, we, we recognize the reality of who we are. I recognize the reality of who I am as a mere man, a sinful man. Opening up the truth of your word. But I recognize also the reality of who you are from your word. That you are faithful and just God. You are a God who will not overturn the wicked. You will not turn your head to sin. But you are a God who is merciful and gracious. You are steadfast. And you will not, not carry out your promises. God, we see your promises fulfilled in your son. We see his life. We see his death. We see the meaning of all things wrapped up in Jesus. God, we have many things in our life that keep us from believing that initially and believing that throughout our lives. God, let us lay those down today. God, allow the truth of the gospel, the resurrecting power of Jesus to make us steadfast, immovable. Help us to be clear about the work you've called us to and to abound in it. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these beautiful saints. I thank you for the call you put upon our lives. God, I pray as we sing now, we remember the truth of the words that we're singing. We would confess them to you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.